Well, it is good to be back worshiping with you, getting the opportunity to lead us all once again into the text of God's Word. Uh, This morning is the first day of a new sermon series I will be doing on Jesus' parables. Now, if you're not familiar with the term, a parable is a name for the stories that Jesus told as he taught. Uh, Whenever Jesus is asked a question, very often he responds with a question and then with a story. And he tells a number of stories, depending on how you count them, because there are parallel accounts in the various Gospels, Uh, Because Jesus was an itinerant preacher, he told the same stories in many places. But there are, depending on how you count, at least 46 different stories that Jesus told. Now, we're not going to look at all of them. Uh, Some of them are two or three verses, and we're not going to look at very many of those little short ones. Uh, But we are going to look at about 23 of these stories Uh, that the Spirit of God has given to us through our Lord's own lips. Um, uh, The point of the parables sometimes is not immediately obvious, and that is part of their power. How many of you have been reading the Gospels and Jesus tells a story and you're like, I don't get it. What is that about, right? And that's for two reasons. One, that Jesus is, is... telling you a story because he is trying to hook you in, okay? And if you're not hooked and drawn in, if you're an unbeliever who's not interested in what Jesus has to say, then because he hasn't stated the truth to you directly, you're less accountable for it than if you had heard it straight out. On the other hand, uh, for those who are hungry to know these stories that we don't immediately get a hold of, have this power to draw us in and want us to and want to know more. Well, what was that about, Jesus? What are you telling me? Uh, if you are not really paying attention, though, these stories can sound like random observations about life. But if you're hungry, you find that Jesus uses them to teach profound spiritual truth in a uniquely memorable way, such that once you understand the point, you can't forget the story that goes along with it. And my prayer for us is that as we look at these stories, that the Spirit of God will both implant the story and the truth that it contains in our hearts so deeply that we are irreversibly transformed by Jesus' teaching. And in fact, before we get into the Word this morning, I'd like to pray that very thing. So if you would join me in prayer. God, our Heavenly Father, we know that Jesus is a master teacher. That He was able to speak profound truth in ways that leave us sometimes puzzled sometimes intrigued, sometimes upset, and sometimes filled with wonder. Father, I pray that as we look at some of the stories that Jesus told, that you would use your Holy Spirit's power to implant them in our hearts, 
so that we are irreversibly changed from this point forward. Father, we, we don't want to simply encounter truth and, and have the reaction of, oh, that's interesting, or even, oh, that's convicting, or, ooh, that points out an area of my life that needs to change. Father, I pray that, in fact, we would not stop there, but we would move beyond that to I will change by the Spirit's power and enablement day by day. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, as we're beginning our study, um, I want to begin with a story that is the, if you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, they all indicate is the very first story that Jesus tells as he begins his ministry. And the version that we're looking at is found in the Gospel of Luke uh, in chapter 5 beginning in verse 27. So, if you're able, I invite you to stand as I read Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 39. This is what the Word of God says. After he went out and saw, after this he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repent. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. And he also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed, but new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you. Again, for your word. Father, we pray that you would use it to change us. Don't let it harden us, Father, and make us calloused to its truth. Father, use it to change us. Use it to help us. Do surgery on us here this morning, Father, in our hearts that we might be changed and healed. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, if you look at the first section of this, uh, beginning verse 27, I want to back up and give you a little context. First of all, where is Jesus? Uh, where is this happening? If you look at the parallel accounts in Mark chapter 2 and Matthew 9, you'll find out that Jesus is in Capernaum. Now, this is really fun for me because I've just been there. 
right? I've stood in ancient Capernaum. I've seen Peter's house. I have seen his mother-in-law's house. I've seen the place where the man who was lowered on the mat through the roof. There's only one house in that entire village that has a tile roof. The scriptures mention that it was a tile roof that they were lowered down on, and they dug up the one house with a tile roof in that place. I've been there. It's really cool. Um, someday maybe you'll get to go too. It was fantastic. But uh, Capernaum is this village of about 3,000 people in Jesus' day that is located on the north end of the Sea of Galilee. And it's located on this major trade route between Damascus and Egypt. These are two major cities then, as now, uh, between, uh, between Damascus and Egypt. You would stop at Capernaum on this route called the Via Maris, the Way of the Sea, right? And um, you may remember, in fact, a prophecy that speaks of how when Messiah comes, he will come by the Way of the Sea in Galilee of the Gentiles. Well, guess where Jesus went? To this town on the Way of the Sea in Galilee. And, uh, and so a great many people more than would live in Capernaum at any one time, would pass through Capernaum on, a, on, a, on any given day because it was on a major trade route. This is the interstate of the, of the day, if you will. And because it was, the, it was a waypoint between two regions, it was also a major center for tax collection, as well as being, if you can imagine this, a really strategic location for someone starting a new ministry. Because where... Where would be the best place to make sure your message went out all over the world? Right along a major trade route between major cities that were connected all over the world. And so that's where Jesus went. And when you think tax collector, what do you imagine? When you hear tax collector, are you, if you're imagining a guy with like a short sleeve shirt and a necktie with a green eye shade, it's the wrong mental picture. Okay, you know what I'm talking about. Like the short sleeve dress shirt buttoned all the way up, little necktie, you know, little little nerdy guy uh, in, with glasses. You know, if you're thinking accountants, okay, I say that not to disparage accountants. I married one, okay, but but simply to say that if that's your picture of tax collector, you're thinking way too modern. You're thinking a guy who works for the IRS, okay. Uh, the Romans did not have a permanent civil service with a permanent set of employees, you know, with like a 401k and whatever else. What they, what they did when they went into an area is they would sell the job of collecting taxes. And they had a really interesting way of doing that. They said, look, we got the job of tax collector for this area up for sale because this is a prosperous area located on a major trade route. We're going to sell this job for a lot of money. And then annually, we need to collect a certain amount from this area. And um, this is the amount, and let's say for the sake of easy math or, or easily talking about it, we need to collect a million dollars in tax revenue from this, from this town. Well, what they would do, though, is tell people, okay, well, you have the right to collect taxes, and we get a million dollars in tax revenue every year you lose your job. But we're not going to tell you how much you can collect. 
only how much we get. If you can imagine how that would work in reality, that's a system that's ripe for abuse. Amen? Because what would you set the rate at? Whatever you want. And, and on top of that, you had unlimited power to enforce the tax collection regime. It was a system custom built for abuse because if you didn't pay what the tax collector demanded, there was no one to appeal to. You either paid or you and or various members of your family were sold into slavery to pay your tax debt. So when you hear tax collector, what you need to imagine is not the guy with green eye shades. You need to imagine Don Corleone sitting at his desk. You feel me? A guy who says, you know, I'm going to make you an offer you can't refuse. I'm serious, okay? I mean, that's funny to think about, but that's reality. This is a guy with a bunch of thugs that work for him. That if you don't pay him what you owe me, what I say you owe me, then I will either sell you or sell your wife or sell your children into slavery. I will seize your house. I will seize the assets of your business. It will all be sold to satisfy what I demand. Jesus goes to Capernaum, major center for tax collection on a major trade route. He begins his ministry. He starts preaching the gospel. He does amazing miracles in that place. A number of them. And he goes up to the tax collector booth and says to that guy, come follow me. Do you get the picture? Come follow me to Don Corleone? You've got to be kidding me. What kind of a religious leader calls that guy to be his follower? On top of that, this guy Levi is a Jew, which means he is abusing his own people for the benefit of their imperial oppressor. If you were a Jew doing this job, you were doubly hated. Jesus went and called that guy. And so understandably, the religious leaders of the area get together and they go to Jesus and they say, hey, what gives? And on top of that, Levi gets all his tax collector buddies, all of his enforcers and knee breakers and thugs, and they all get together at his house for a party and invite Jesus, and Jesus goes. It's a scandal. It's a little town. Can you imagine if there was if there were, if there was a local affiliate of the mob here in town, and they invited your pastor to dinner, and he went? Would any of you have questions? <laughs> All that, right? They have questions. 
Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. What's Jesus' point? That this guy and all of his buddies are exactly the kind of people who need me most. And that this is the kind of people who actually see their need for him and repent of sin as they come to him. The people who already think that they're pretty good folks, the people who see themselves, as Jesus has it here, the righteous, have a hard time coming to Jesus because they don't even know that they're sick. Never mind in desperate need of a Savior, apart from Him. But these people, Matthew leaves his tax collector booth. What's he doing? He's saying, my life as I have lived it up to now has not been good. I'm going to do something else. I'm going to follow Jesus. Would you leave behind that kind of a life where you're making a very good living to go follow Jesus, a man who's wearing the clothes that he owns and who has, as he says, no place to lay his head? Levi did. Not the healthy, you need a doctor, but the sick. And Jesus calls this sick man to follow him. And he and a bunch of his self-identified sinner buddies go, I'm in, let's go for Jesus. It's a glorious thing. And they joyfully trade in their old life for a new one. Can you see that? Let's look, let's look some more into this text. In verse 33, they and they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers and showed the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. In other words, they still don't get it. Jesus is just not acting like they think a rabbi and a religious teacher should act. So they ask him a question about fasting. John's disciples fast, the Pharisees' disciples fast, but yours don't. Why is that? Jesus' answer is to compare himself to the groom at a wedding. A Jewish wedding at this time was a phenomenal celebration. It lasted for seven days. There's a humongous feast involved. Nobody goes home. You just all gather and eat for a week. It sounds like a party I would like to be at. Amen? It's like Thanksgiving at your parents' house or whatever, you know, only you like show up instead of Thursday, you throw up the previous Thursday and just eat the entire time. There's a feast. And so Jesus' answer is that his ministry and his presence among sinners is an occasion for celebration like a wedding. And only later when he goes away will it be time to fast. And to help them understand and us understand a little more clearly, he tells them two related stories, two parables. And first, he uses the example of clothes. And he talks about tearing patches from something new to fix up your old ones. Now, Let's say that you have an old pair of Levi's. 
let's say that they're your 501 button flies from high school, and you love them, right? But over time, they have gotten fatigued. And so you think to yourself, I know what I'll do. I'll go and I will spend $60 on a new pair. And I will just cut patches out of them and stitch them onto the old ones. Would you do that? No. Why? Well, because the cloth doesn't match, first of all. So it will be real obvious that that's what you've done and it will look stupid. Um, but on top of that, when you wash and dry those suckers, because the new cloth is not the same level of shrunk up as the old, when you dry it, it will shrink away from where you patched it and it will make the rip worse. That won't work, right? That will not work. You'll do, and on top of that, by the way, you'll have wrecked a brand new pair of good pants, right? And uh, the second story relates to the to new wine needing new wineskins. Now, when you think new wine, what you need to think of is not the way we make wine today. The way we make wine today, you know, they, it's honestly it's done in big stainless steel vats and they, they ferment it and so forth before they put it in a bottle. Uh, in the ancient world, what you did was you made your wine and you just put it in a raw wineskin. And the fermentation process had barely started yet. So guess what happens when wine ferments? There's all these gases that are produced, right? So what does that skin do? It swells. Right? And all that, it all stretches out. Right? But it's fine because if you got enough stretch in that dude, then, um, then it'll still hold it without breaking. Well, what happens if you take an old stretched out wineskin and put brand new wine that hasn't finished fermenting into that old stretched out wineskin? When that, it's all the stretch is already gone. So what happens? Your wineskin blows up, is what happens. And wine goes everywhere, all over the room, and you lose the wine and the wineskin both. Right? So this is obviously suboptimal if you're wanting to have something to drink. And, and so Jesus uses this example. Um, so you need to put new wine and new wineskins. And then he adds this line at the end. No, no one after drinking old wine desires the new, for he says, the old is good. All right, so far so good? Let's pray. All right, no, let's dig a little deeper into this and understand what he means. Uh, the point of, is that Jesus' ministry is something radically new. Something radically new. He's not just another rabbi. He's not just another itinerant preacher of religious or a religious leader like the Pharisees and their scribes. He's something else entirely. And he doesn't tell them who he is just yet, but he is inviting them to investigate and to discover the truth and to recognize that he isn't somebody whose teaching you can just add a little bit of to your old life. You can't go, hmm, well, Jesus is something new. I'll just tear off a little bit of that, stitch it on to my old life, and just go on. No, that won't work. 
any more than tearing off a piece of new cloth and stitching it onto your old pair of Levi's will work. Uh, any more than putting new wine in an old wineskin will work. You can't do that. An old wineskin can't withstand the transformation brought about by putting new wine into them. And so these people who are questioning Jesus' interaction with tax collectors and sinners cannot receive the transformation that He is offering. Why not? Because they prefer the old things that they already believe. In the same way that if someone is a wine drinker, they like aged wine, the new wine. And this is where this passage hits home for you and me. You see, when we come to Christ, a whole lot of us are pretty happy with our lives and we see ourselves as pretty good folks. Maybe not righteous exactly, but we see ourselves not as bad people, but as good people. And we do not see ourselves many times as sinners destined to experience the righteous wrath of a holy God apart from life-upending, soul-transforming faith in Jesus. But, when we come to faith in Jesus, we do experience that very thing. And we start to see ourselves rightly. So let me ask you today. Jesus says that he came to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Have you come to a place in your life where you recognize that you are indeed a sinner? Do you realize how much you need him? And have you put your faith in Jesus Christ? Because if you haven't ever done that, I plead with you to do that. To put your faith in Jesus Christ and to see yourself as God sees you, as a sinner who needs Jesus, and as someone He deeply loves and sent Jesus for you precisely. That He might save you from sin and death, and hell. And by the way, there is no salvation in anyone else, in anything else. There's no salvation apart from faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone. And it doesn't matter if you are an objectively bad guy, like Levi, or someone who thinks that he or she is a pretty good person. We are all sinners, according to the Scriptures. And apart from faith in Jesus Christ, we are all lost. And the only solution to that is to put your faith in Jesus Christ and find in Him the new life that He offers. But if you're a believer, you also need to know this for sure, that you cannot come to Jesus as if He is offering you uh, some sort of a band-aid fix onto your life. You can't, you can't come to him, in other words, and say, hey, just give me a patch job, Jesus. I'm not really interested in that whole life transformation thing that I've heard about. Uh, that's not really my thing. I just want you to fix up my old life just well enough to uh, function in it in a way that I already enjoy and not go to hell. 
you can't ask Jesus to tear off a patch of new life for us and stitch it on to our old favorite we've been living. It doesn't work that way. And neither can we add the new wine of faith in Jesus and following Him as His disciple to the old wineskin of the way that we used to live. You know, Jesus, I would really like to be saved from death and hell and that whole thing, but I really uh, would like to have that as well as continue sleeping with my boyfriend or girlfriend and cheating on my taxes and watching porn and lying to my friends when I'm in trouble and slacking off at work and getting drunk and high on Friday nights and being angry and defensive when people confront me and yelling at my spouse and hating people who aren't like me. I mean, after all, I want just enough life change to keep me out of hell here. Now, you might not quite put it that bluntly, but a lot of people try to put their faith in Jesus and then act as if that's what He's going to do for them. And Jesus says, no, you need a new wineskin, a new receptacle, to handle all the things that are going to happen in your life when I come into it. And you can't tear off a little piece of Jesus and stitch him on. That won't work either. You're going to need new clothes. Amen? The solution is to come once more to Jesus. If that's the way you've been trying to live life, is to just stitch him on to various places where it leaks. Or to, to pour the new wine of the Holy Spirit into your old life as if that will make it work. It won't work. And the solution is to come once again to Jesus, not for salvation, because you're already a believer but in repentance, admitting to him that you have tried what you tried to do. Jesus, I've tried to stitch you on in some area of my life, and I need something brand new here. Jesus, I've tried to contain all the transformation you want to bring in my life in some worn out, stretched out thing that I've constructed for myself. And I'm tired of doing that. I need something new. And here's the thing. When the Bible talks about repentance, it, it gets a bad rap to people. People think, oh, repentance is, oh, 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 repent. I don't want to do that. But in reality, repentance is the most hopeful thing in the world. Because what it is, is admitting reality <laughs> and then experiencing freedom from all the old and worn out and busted things you've tried to do with your life that didn't work. And when we confess our sin, we get a new start, a mulligan, a rover in our walk with Jesus. We get the opportunity to try again, follow Jesus, to be empowered by his spirit, and we begin to grow in our ability to do so. And I think that's amazing good news. Amen? And so if you need to repent today, you don't have to tell everybody. We're not going to make you come down 
in front of everybody and say, I've been a sinner. I've been horrible. Okay, because here's the reality. We're all sinners, and we've all been horrible. Okay, <laughs> but, but if you're a sinner, and you believe in Jesus, and you need to repent of something, you can do so right now. Do business with God as we talk to Him. And if you've never experienced the wonderful freedom, the glorious freedom of the children of God, of knowing that your sins are forgiven and your transgressions are covered and that you have a new relationship with God. You can do that today as we pray. You can talk to God and tell Him, Lord, I've been living my own life for a long time and it has never worked. And I recognize that I'm a sinner who is lost apart from faith in Jesus and I'm putting my faith in Him right now. Will you receive me as your child? And as you talk to Him, I have the most wonderful news for you. The Lord will receive you as His. And you'll begin that new life that we've talked so much about. Let's pray. Let's do business with God. Father, I pray this morning that if there is, in fact, anyone who has never known the freedom that comes through faith in Christ, that today would be the day Father, I pray that they would respond as the Scripture reminds us. That today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Today is the day of salvation. Father, may those who don't know you, know you before they walk out of here. And Father, I pray they would recognize their sin. That their sin separates them from you right now and will for eternity apart from faith in Jesus. And that they would receive your gift of love, faith in Christ that transforms from the inside out for all eternity. And Father, for those of us who know you, if we've still been trying to stitch something on, add some new thing to our old life, or to hold the new wine of your Holy Spirit's presence in the fragments of our old life that we're still trying to hold together. Father, I pray we would stop doing that. We would leave all that mess behind. And say, Holy Spirit, fill me with your presence. Make me new. And I might experience the new life that Christ has promised and given me. Don't let me go back to a past job version of Christianity. Let me experience the real thing of new life in Christ. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name for all of us. Amen.